Hello and welcome to the Event Lab podcast, your window into the events conversation, brought to you by Hirespace. This episode, we have a live recording from the conference stage at Event Lab 2019. Richard Maddox, author of The Energy Book and co-founder of Communicum BV, makes a memorable talk on productivity. Productivity itself has a huge amount to do with how you use your mental energy, how much you've got and how much you use it. Then we have the fire extinguisher, a segment where an events professional tells us about a time everything has gone very awry at an event and they've had to solve the problem. We're kicking this off with Felicity Cater, head of Event Lab. If someone's hungover, you go for the food first. Yeah, food and coffee. Uh, absolutely. Uh, fuel is the number one. But first, media blackouts at events, why so few young people are planning a career in hospitality, and the team express their views on Martin's Law. All that and more as Martin Fullard, Sam Allen, Richard Groves and Edward Poland sit down for the News Digest. Evening, everyone. Evening, Ed. Good evening. Hello, everybody. Richard Groves. Good evening. How are you? Very good. How are you? Nice to see you. Very well, indeed. Thank you. Fantastic. Very well. Yeah. Fantastic. Martin Fullard, editor of Conference News. Yes, here and speaking. Welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a while, actually. I haven't yeah. seen you in 2020. Yeah, well, not many people have. Well rested. <laughs> uh, no. Good. <laughs> that's all I have to. That, that's it. I'm not well rested at all. We're straight back into the uh, into the grind of the events industry. We are indeed, and. Back again, we have Sam Allen. Happy New Year. Sam, when were you last here? Oh, probably my last time I saw you was Event Lab. Oh, yeah. So that was October. I think the last podcast must have been in the summer. So, yeah, probably the summer, guys. So, Sam, how long have you officially now been an international international MC? And how's it going? It is officially 12 months in two weeks' time since my first sort of proper gig and it's um yeah uh, thank you for asking it's gone incredibly well and tell, the, tell the, the new listeners what you're what you do okay so i am professional conference mc and moderator and i work with audiences all around the world helping them engage their content help them with meeting design to make more engaging meetings and um yeah i'm the glue i'm the mc on the front of house so, so Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of State. So this is at the PCMA uh, Convening Leaders Conference in San Francisco. So essentially the, the PCMA wrote to the media in advance of the conference and said to them um, they were essentially banned from covering it. And this article, which appeared in uh, my magazine, would you accept a media blackout clause issued by your keynote speaker? And should you? Well, before we kind of came on air, I decided that I didn't have a strong opinion. But since that, about eight minutes ago, I have now developed a very strong opinion. And it's wrong. It's wrong. I think it's Your wrong. Your opinion? Uh... My, my opinion is in, <laughs> is in stone. I think it's wrong. I think that if you are on the keynote circuit and you are employed to speak at an event, uh, I think you are going on stage and before people, I think that you 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 can't make that demand i think that but let's be honest in this situation predominantly trade press it's important things we're not looking to catch people out i think that you have to allow and accept that media are there if you are in the public eye i don't think you can make that demand i think it's really weird because um most people when they they go and speak at a, a, a 
trade event like this want the message mm. to get out there, and particularly the organisers want the message to get out there, because otherwise you've got the 500 people in the room and, and, and they, that event stops there, and everybody's looking for longevity of the product now, and they want it to go have a life beyond the plenary session. So why she said that, I don't know, because most people issue their, their speeches or it goes online, or you know, it's, it's all out there. Now, whether she was saying something contentious, which I can't really believe she was, yeah. whether it was a speech that she trots out around the world and she, she wants to keep some IP to herself mm. to make sure that actually it doesn't look like she's just repeating herself and taking the $20,000 every time she does it. But I just can't see, A, what the relevance was of, of embargoing this quite so aggressively and why drew attention to herself. Like as a journalist, if I were to receive that, and uh, you'll have to forgive me, I'm not sure if my colleagues who work on our international magazines did, I don't know. If I'd received that, that'd leave, that'd leave a sour taste. I'd have to think twice about attending that event. I think it's a difficult one and I think from sort of seeing social media sort of of PCM, I have a lot of friends who uh, go to that conference and people I know that work with that conference that without a shadow of a doubt she was one of the best speakers that they have ever, ever, ever had. So the feedback post-conference and also from members of the press. I think it. I think it's a case by case thing. I think probably the the one takeout for event organisers is when you're um, hiring your keynote, whether you're doing it through an agency or doing it direct, is read the contracts. Don't you know? Read them with a fine tooth comb. I'm not obviously not saying anything against um, PCMA or anyone else like that, but I would say from from an event planner, from a hint and tip, I have to do the same thing as an MC. Whether you're sending a contract or whether you're responding to a client contract. I think it's a really important thing that uh, we can highlight. So it's a good tip for for our listeners. But it's obviously worked to, to an extent because we are talking about it. But we just don't know what she said. So this article says, associations who agree to gagging clauses of this kind need to consider what it says about their own attitude to freedom of speech and how that will play with their members. I wouldn't go too no. far down that rabbit hole. Uh, personally, I think that, yeah, I think it, that's a bit attention-seeky, if I'm honest. I think that's, you know, the, the context is this is a... Uh, it's it's a business association for our business events industry. It's not a controversial industry. I don't see any reason why there should be such secrecy around a keynote. I really don't think it was a very good idea, and I think that the PCMA should be uh, so good, not a good idea from this. from Condoleezza Rice, or not a good idea. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. If you're going to put yourself out there, I mean, when these politicians have kind of ended their political career, the, the, the keynote circuit is very much a big earner for them. Totally. Yeah. You have, but when you do that, you have to accept that you're always going to be under scrutiny. You are going to have to, you are going to be quoted by the media. The media are going to be noting what you say. And like you say, the laws are different country to country. And then how it is implemented on proper press, if you like, is is much stricter than it is on social media. Anyone could have snuck in there during that keynote, held their phone up, recorded the whole thing, live streamed it to Facebook, and the laws wouldn't apply. Well, that's the other thing because I assume they, they, they they wouldn't. Anyone can anyone can tweet something. I'm sure there were a lot of amateur journalists in the audience. I guess those guys wouldn't have got the formal uh, letters from the PCMA in advance of the no, event. How do you stop those? They, you know, if people are asked at the at the conference, which I'm told everybody was asked the same thing. It's is it any different to when we go to the theatre? We don't. We don't bat an eyelid. You don't get reporters saying, I can't take pictures of the Lion King and yeah, what's get, going on. when it first comes out and, and images in but the paper. Was, you know, there was post-press. So again, is it any different? Is it just a, a good thing because media a, like to have a little whinge and a moan? Not really. I, just think it's, I think it's bad optics. If nothing else, just bad optics. I don't think it makes the, the, uh, 
the PCMA look very good, if I'm honest. And I certainly don't think it makes Condoleezza Rice look very good. I think it just, it's putting up a barrier that doesn't need to be there. I was thinking why, why, why Condoleezza Rice would have done it, Rich. I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's because it probably gives the same same speech all over the and, world. And maybe it just as a contract that she uses for everybody. And being ex-Secretary of State, she probably does quite a lot of this for defence companies and armaments companies and possibly British American Tobacco, and, you know, big organisations she doesn't necessarily want to be aligned to but happy to take the £100,000 they pay her to do the keynote speech. Cool. So uh, the BBC have published a survey. They they surveyed, I think, 7,000 teenagers and asked them what they wanted to... what their career aspirations were, essentially. Um, And the, the... the broad finding of the survey was that people wanted to go into into fields where demand was was far higher than supply, essentially, mm-hmm. and they uh, painted a slightly depressing picture of uh, a generation who were going to not achieve their dreams. But the reason interesting for this is because there was one specific sector, which is accommodation and catering, uh, in which the results were the total opposite. And it said only 1.5% were expressing an interest in this field. And it said the industry, those industry accommodation and catering need almost seven times as many students as are expressing an industry, an interest, an interest. interest. Um, That rings a bell. Um, It is... It's perceived hospitality not to be a particularly glamorous industry. It's hard work. As, as I was saying before we came on air, I was talking to um, a young girl on the bus, and before it makes it sound like I'm a weirdo and have my jumper <laughs> tucked into my trousers and my legs surrounded by little bags, um, she actually works for us. And she, she's done a BA in, in um, business. You hold, your, you hold your meetings on the bus then. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's quicker. Um, so, and what we, um, we, we, she's done this BA, and she loves the event world. You know, she, she loves the fact that it's always something different and they're going somewhere different but that's the, the special event side of it which is very it can be very glamorous and very theatrical which is why i enjoy it but there is the other side which is there there are lots of different areas to go into but it's it's, it's perceived to be the service industry and people don't like the service industry yeah and, you know but what are we doing you know we we you know you'll find in half the industry press you've got people like the bvp and all these reports coming out about what we're worth and we sort of seem to bang our drums and talking to government what are we doing as an industry to sort of lobby at that that level, not government, in, in, at schools, yeah. to talk about what this is and where things can progress? In my in my view, the events industry suffers a bit of an identity issue in that it is not so easy to understand what it fully encompasses. You you know, if you're an events manager, I was at the uh, London Summer Event Show today at Banking Hall, yeah, and met several corporate event managers, casual conversations, I always ask, you know, events industry, identity, what's your views on it and so on. When you speak to your friends, tell them what you do. What's the response when you tell them you work in the events industry? And it's always the, oh yeah, wedding planner, party planner. That's what it comes to mind to a lot of people when you say events industry. That We know that's not the case. There's £43 billion worth out there coming into UK PLC every year through conferences, through meetings, in centre travel exhibitions. It's a big industry. And tradition, in my view, the events industry is not seen as an industry in its own right, but rather the roots to the tree that is each other, every other industry. So the automotive sector is a tree. There is an events industry root that holds it together and creates mm-hmm. it. The same with finance, the same with legal and so on and so on. As an industry on its own, it is very difficult to kind of contemplate. Uh, and I think that 
really is is shown in that survey because people at the age of 17, I mean, I didn't know when I was 17 that the events industry, which I worked in at that time at a go-kart track running corporate events, I didn't know I was part of something bigger that's worth this much money and yeah. conferences and so on. I had no idea that existed. But catering in particular, you think now with everything that's on the flipping telly, you switch on any television channel there is something about cooking mm. whether it's baking it's pie making whether it's whatever it might be you can tell i've been away and i don't watch an awful <laughs> lot of telly but i also know you know it's master chef this master there's always something on and you know what they all look miserable they're all under stress doing it gordon ramsay's shouting at them yeah. and all there's sorts a of disconnect between what prizes, you think it yeah. might be like and what yeah. it actually is like and not everybody very few people want to be a chef. And when you watch that programme, you think, well, I can't do that. Mm. But so, what inspire, how do you inspire that generation as a business? I mean, catering's your world, so... Um, it's the... There is a, a certain amount of glamour to it. There is a, there's a, there's a lot of um, technical detail. There's a lot of effort that goes into it. This is a hard job, and people, yeah. some people don't want to work till three o'clock in the morning. But bringing out think? those skills, as you <sighs> said, Richard, the technical skills, the observation, the business, you know, there's business skills, there's social skills. There are so many things that you get from being in, whether it's accommodation, catering, but we're just not shouting out yet again, 2020. Mm. You know, we've invented the hoverboard and we haven't Have managed. We? No, we haven't, not no. yet. But yeah, End I think also there's, you know, there's a... Uh there's an element of career progression too. I mean, catering at a, at a, at a level when you're in your early twenties and so on, you know, it is fine if you're on the waitressing scene or, or whatever, but people will need to understand that there's a career progression here. The amount of people I meet in, in the events industry who, you know, in commas, fell into it through different channels it is, it is vast. So we need to tell people, let people know that there is a career progression here, getting yeah. on this level and look at all these avenues you could explore later on. I think this is also, Sorry, I know that we're not mentioning anything to do with what's happening with on the 31st of January, but if you go to Tax any day. any mm. European country and you go to restaurants, you'll find, you know, you go to France, to Germany, to Switzerland, you go into a restaurant, the 99% chance is going to be, you know, older men serving mm, yeah. you. It's their career. So what and are those countries? They're they standing are, in the village and, you know, they that's are, what they're doing. There's huge kudos. Mm. It's, a, it's a real recognised, honoured profession so it's this is a UK problem, and I think uh, we should be looking it's, to others it's to see how we can develop than, it. Oh, is it. Is it going to be yeah, ever yeah. more of a problem, right? We've got to find them locally if we're mm. not going to find them. This is now a real problem. Yeah. And it was okay it, it, when we could fill the gap with our... Yeah, and we want to start something called the Smart um, Agency or Smart Academy, Academy or whatever yeah. to try and bring people up because historically, across the business, people have been underpaying people in the, in the events business. Mm. Well, yeah, I was, I was going to say that. Is there, is, there, is there the wrong distribution of wealth in the industry? Can we, can we, can we, get, mm-hmm. can we pay people better? Ideally, you would. And actually, the more you pay them, the, on the whole, the better they are and the, the more in, um, motivated they are. I want to swing back really quickly, almost out of time, Martin, just because you're here. Um, and I know you know a lot about the subject we touched last time on security at venues. Um, uh, Martin's Law. Uh, Martin, I know you, you've kind of you've been speaking on this recently. T- tell, us, tell us what it is and, and what the implications uh, in are. In short, Martin's Law is named after a young lad called Martin Hett, who was tragically killed in the Manchester Arena bombings in 2017. His mother, Fegan Murray, has since been campaigning to have tighter security uh, Made le- uh, sorry made through law uh, at all public venues, events, and so on. Uh, we are covering this over the course of the year. It's a big talking point. The so-called Martin's Law kind of looks at more the public venue, the music mm. concerts, uh, you know, the, the big events, festivals. 
which is a much easier thing to manage in terms of security. But when we look at uh, smaller events, which we all know and are involved with a lot, specifically something like what happened at Fishmongers Hall at the end of November, the conversation becomes a little bit more complicated. There is obviously an element of cost uh, when it comes to additional security. How much should the venue uh, take responsibility for? At what point should the organiser then contribute to the Mm. additional security? There's a lot going on. And... Manchester City Council have uh, taken the principles of this law, which isn't legislation yet. They've taken the principles and they're going to factor it into their venue licensing criteria. However, there is now word that the government are going to be pushing this through as early as the end of this month. So we will see. But it is something that I would urge everyone to stay on top of. Keep an eye out for developments in the news. Uh, We will obviously try to update you as in much detail as we possibly can. But this conversation is not one that needs to be taken lightly. No overreactions, but there's no harm in just reviewing our processes and protocols and risk assessments for major events. Great. Keep up with it on conference news. Guys, we are out of time. Thank you very much, everyone. Sam, when are you off to Riyadh? Um... Off on Sunday um, and, yeah, back on uh, Wednesday night, early hours of Thursday morning. Will you send us a dispatch? I will let you know, yeah, watch out because it also ties in very nicely to the end of the month and my blog. Oh, well, there you go. We can read all about it. You can read all about it. But thanks for having me back. It's been great to have you. We've missed you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Ed. See you next time. Thank you. Bye. Loved that. If we get any more events experts in the room, we're going to have to start buying more chairs for the studio. Next up, from Event Lab 2019, a talk on productivity by Richard Maddock, author of The Energy Book and co-founder of Communicum BV. Slightly blind. (laughs) I mean, I can imagine if after however long you've been here, most of you the whole day, maybe even yesterday as well, that kind of like been flooded with information, meeting lots of different people, your energy levels aren't going to be at the highest. So you're in luck because I'm here to give you an energy boost. I'm here to talk to you about energy and a particular part of it about how to increase your productivity. I think the session was actually labelled maximise your energy and productivity to make more time which would be an interesting concept because making more time kind of difficult. You, you've got 24 hours a day, seven days a week like me. So it's much more about what do you do in that time? How can you be more productive in that time? And to some degree, how can you win time back? If you're looking at being more productive, then maximizing your energy is absolutely key. It's really crucial, and I'm going to explain in a couple of moments as to why. Just a quick glisser question. I think you're all familiar with this. So could you tell me, just fill in now on glisser if you're able to do that with your smartphones and devices. On a scale of one to 10, where one is like, I'd rather be horizontal than sitting, sitting here, and 10 is live wire. What's your energy level at this moment? I don't know how you think about energy or what you know about personal human energy. If you look it up in the dictionary, it'll say something like the strength and vitality to sustain physical or mental activity. That's a pretty good definition to start with. There are, however, four types of personal energy. So you've got, indeed, the physical, 
and the mental, but then you've got emotional and purpose energy as well. So physical energy, that is related to the quantity of energy that you feel. You know, that's when you feel like, yeah, I can take on the world if you're a 10. The emotional energy, it defines the quality of your energy and to a large degree the quality of your life, how you feel. Your mental energy, that's all about your ability to focus, laser focus if you've got a high mental energy. And purpose energy, it's really the key to having more impact and power from all of your energies. Purpose energy is defined by when you can answer the whys. Why are you here today? Why are you here in this session? Why did you get up this morning? Why are you doing what you do? Why do you live the way you do? Why do you exercise or eat the way you know? There's all sorts of, when you know the answers to the whys of your whole life, that gives all of your other energies so much more power. I'm not gonna go and don't have the time, unfortunately, to go into great detail on this, but I just wanted you to know this is how the picture works. The good thing about personal human energy is it's renewable. What happens when you don't charge your phone, when you use it day after day, kind of runs down, doesn't work so well, if you carry on like that, gone. Your system works exactly the same way. Now fortunately, I imagine you sleep sometimes. You know, we have the day, night, we have work and weekends and this, 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 all this, you eat, you take in fuel, but you don't know if it's in balance, you don't know how you're doing on the other areas, emotional, you know, when you get punched from things when they don't go well or when you get frustrated, how do you rebalance? We know how to recharge our phones, but often people are not very good at recharging with themselves. So one of the tips, really simple tips, and believe you me, this has massive effect on your productivity, is to take more breaks. I don't know how you work, and actually this applies seven days a week, but let's just keep, keep to your working day. During your working day, this is not fiction, this is fact, by the way. If you were to take a break, minimum every 90 minutes, you will be more productive. You will be smarter, you will be more creative, you will be healthier. It's so important. But most, well, not most, but so many people think, lunches for wimps, let alone breaks, bullshit. Breaks are absolutely essential. You want to be more productive, then start taking a five to 15 minute break, minimum every 90 minutes during your working days. What you do in those breaks, all sorts of things, but not the same work. <laughs> you don't switch to a different task, no, you take a break from the work. You don't then go and have a cup of coffee with a colleague and then start carrying on talking about the work. No, you take a break. And I could give you hundreds of these ideas. Here's just a list of them. I'm not going to go through them now. The, I, th I guess you guys get copies of the slides and things like that. So Yes, they do. <laughs> so it'll be in the slides. But please, use this as a list. Think up your own things. More productivity means more breaks. Regular. So that's tip number one. Productivity itself has a huge amount to do with how you use your mental energy, how much you've got and how much you use it. Why? Well, it's because 
These are the things that we're talking about with mental energy. And if you're looking at productivity and wanting to be more product productive, then being able to focus better, being able to concentrate better, and being able to really use the massive brain that you've got and the powers of it, those are key factors in being more productive. So I'll give you more some tips how to do that. But first, another Glissa question. Your mental energy at this moment. <laughs> this could be an interesting one. <laughs> the end of the second day. <laughs> your mental energy. Are you able to be the bottom one here, laser focused? Is your energy sort of focused, but a little bit scattered? You're struggling to keep hold of what I'm saying, or during the day-to-day, -day it's been a bit of a struggle, but still focus from time to time, or so on. Fully scattered means, you know, I just, there's so many thoughts running through my head, I just can't focus. What's your energy, mental energy level at the moment on that scale? We'll come back to this at the end as to what your answers were. Let's look at how you work today. I'm going to look at three different ways of working. Who thinks they can multitask? Okay. Hands down. Who drives a car? Okay. We've either got a lot of bad drivers here, or you don't fully understand the definition of multitasking. When you are driving a car, you're multitasking. Multitasking means you're doing different tasks, different activities, but they're connected and they're focused on achieving the same singular outcome. So when you're driving a car, hopefully you're looking in the mirrors, you're keeping an eye on the road, you're using the pedals and all sorts of, you know, you're doing a multiple thing and you're hopefully, the result you want is driving safely from A to B and I guess for some of you, as quickly as possible. So that's multitasking. If you're cooking a meal, you're multitasking. Let alone if you're a chef in a restaurant trying to prepare you know, all these different orders. There are many different times that you're multitasking, but the definition is connected tasks, singular outcome. What many people confuse the word multitasking with is another word, switch tasking. Now, switch tasking, whereas multitasking is good in certain circumstances, switch tasking is, in terms of productivity, killing. I'll give you an idea of what switch tasking is, and you'll definitely recognize this, I'm sure. Let's take me working on this presentation a couple of days ago. Working on the presentation, and I had Outlook open on my laptop, so I saw emails popping up, and I think, oh, just have a quick look at that email. Oh, I'll quickly answer that. And then I'm going to go back to the presentation. My smartphone pings with a WhatsApp message. Have a look. Well, one of the kids, I'll quickly reply to that. I'm about to go back to the presentation, and I start working on it. And then my, one of my colleagues is on the phone to somebody, so I'm half listening to the conversation, but I'm working on the presentation. That's switch tasking. And what's happening is every time you switch tasks, you are leaving the so-called flow state of your mind. 
You know what it's like. You know, if you're in an isolated space, suppose you've got cans on headphones, and you're busy focusing on something, and I was busy focusing on this presentation, and I've excluded all other things, I get much more in a flow. My productivity goes up, the quality goes up massively, and I make less mistakes. But every time you switch tasks, it takes quite a few minutes to get back into that flow state. What you need to do if you want real high productivity, something that is so difficult to do, is switch as single tasking. Just one thing at a time. <laughs> but just have a think about how do you actually work? How much of your day is single tasking? How much is switch tasking? How much is multitasking? If you want to increase your productivity, I guarantee you, it's that simple. You sing to go to single tasking as much as possible. It's not possible all the time. But what you have to do if you want to single task is you've got to avoid distractions. And that's real difficult. Do you know why? It's real difficult because you, like me, and like every other, in principle, human being, we are addicts. We're addicted to distraction. It's in our human psyche. We see something go by, we look. You know, maybe that comes from the hunter period, I don't know. But we are so easily distracted. The internet, they're weapons of distraction and disruption. The social media, it's all there trying to grab your attention, which is great, but not if you want to keep your productivity high or increase it. So if you want to increase your productivity, you've got to sort of go into isolation mode. Even if it's just for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, you schedule a block of time. You go into isolation mode. Turn off every other application if you're working behind a laptop. If you're, not, if you're just writing something, throw the, put the laptop somewhere, turn it off. Turn your smartphone off. And for that, that specific block of time, dedicate yourself to that single task. If you do that several times during the day for the appropriate activities, you will find your productivity will go up massively. So that's your second tip. Is there anybody in the room who wishes at work they could spend more time in meetings or telephone calls? Nobody? Oh, one person. One person a little bit, maybe. Okay, there'll be a lot of people that could help you here. <laughs> it's kind of like, why do we always have meetings or telephone conference calls that most of the time seem to be multiples of 30 minutes? Why do we do that? Because Microsoft... Oh, sorry, the customer, actually. Because certain systems, <laughs> one of the software company's products forces you to do that. Or they kind of like suggest it. You want a meeting, boof, 30 minutes. You change it to boof, 60 minutes, 90 minutes. But before that, we had it in paper agendas too. It was just on the hour, so meeting, next meeting, call. And it's rubbish. You don't need 30 minutes or 60 minutes. So I, I have introduced this to many customers, and it really works. And it is such fun, really. <laughs> it creates anarchy in organizations. <laughs> so it's something I call 47-minute meetings. It's actually one of the chapters in my book that I wrote. But what I'm meaning here is when somebody invites you to a meeting, 
you send the reply saying, yeah, I'll be there, but I'll be there for 47 minutes. That's a meeting for an hour. If it's a half an hour meeting, say something, I'll be there for 23 minutes. And I'm serious, and then you leave. And that time you've got left over, you use to take one of the renewal breaks, debrief on the meeting, get ready for the next activity, whatever it is. When you are responsible for making a meeting, invite people, again, for times that they will regard as silly times. And they'll say to you, I think you've made a mistake. You say, no. And it will start a conversation. Push back, start a revolution against getting some of your precious time back from meetings. Have different types of meetings. Have meetings where, in rooms where there are no chairs. I don't know if you've ever done it. Those meetings tend to be pretty short. No chairs, no tables. Just people with their pads or smartphones, whatever. It really works. Change the schedule. Why are we having this meeting every week? Let's try doing it every two weeks. Or even better, once a month. All that kind of stuff. You can do all sorts of things. And the last point here, when people invite you to a meeting, say, I'll confirm my attendance when I get the agenda. Meetings are supposed to have agendas. They're meant to be, that makes you productive. No agenda, I'm not coming. You will find, you will get, you're not making more time, but you're getting time back. The last thing, tip for today, and this is really not meant to be unkind. It's not meant to be unhelpful to others. We're all part of a system. I'm sure most of you have a desire to help, to contribute, to help other people, and so forth. M most people that I come across, I would regard as givers. There are certainly takers I come across, kind of like they tend to abuse the, the givers. But givers so easily say yes to things. Somebody comes and asks them to help, and they think, oh, I don't really have enough time to do this, but okay, I don't want to let you down. It's important, I understand. And you end up getting a pile of stuff that you hadn't expected. You, your productivity goes down, your stress levels go up, you can't achieve all the things you want to do, and so you can't meet all your commitments. So it's really for your own good. If you are a strong giver, important to start saying no more often. And there are different simple ways to do that. The first thing you do when somebody says, could you do this for me? You say, I'll get back to you. Always the standard answer. I'll get back to you. In an hour, tomorrow, next week, whatever is appropriate. That's your standard answer, full stop, never anything else. And in that time that you've bought yourself, you then consider, do I really want to do this? Can I do it? Could somebody else do it? Maybe I could do part of it and somebody else could do it. That's what I call the counter-proposal. And it also gives you time that if you don't want to do it for any, you can come up with the reasons and stick by them. It sounds simple, I know it's not. But if all you do is start off buying time and say, I'll get back to you, I guarantee you it will start a process. And if you do have to say yes, I always say, do it really slowly. You know, kind of like, I'm still not sure yet. Maybe somebody else could help. You know, kind of just push back as much as possible. So those are the tips I've got for you about productivity. There's, I don't know if we can have a quick look at your energy levels before we close up here. 
So what do we got? 6.1 out of 10. Whoa. <laughs> Back end of the day. I can appreciate that. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's kind of low-ish, but it's understandable uh, towards the end of a day and the end of a two-day conference. But I don't guess, I don't know what levels you've put in yourself, but most people here would like to be more towards the 10, I would think. In general, people like to feel they've got lots of energy and they understand they need time to renew. But let's have a look at the mental energy. There we go. <laughs> it's kind of a predictable pattern. So there was nobody here, fortunately, just go, oh, I'm so scattered. <laughs> so like, That's good. I'm pleased. <laughs> but there's a kind of message here that not just because of the environment you're in today, but it is so, so much space and room here for you guys to improve your productivity. Work on that mental energy. If I go back to the slides, just to close out, it's, I, I'm told you've got to do this when you've just written a book. So the, the publisher's sitting here in the front row. So I've written this book, it came out a couple of weeks ago. It's 50 ways to boost your energy in work and life. And it covers all four of the different energy types. So it'll give you lots of tips. Each chapter is just really short, five-minute read. And the publisher has been very kind to offer a 20% discount to anybody that's attending the conference. Just enter that discount code uh, when you order it on the publisher's site. The publisher is LID, L-I-D. That's enough of the sales stuff. Just to close out, one more slide. I always say to people, whether that's workshops, speeches, you know, if, you're, if you keep doing what you've always done, you will keep getting what you've always had. It's a fact of life. And if you're happy with the way things are, great. But if you want to change things, then think about already tomorrow with regards to what I've just suggested to you, what will you do differently tomorrow to have more impact on your productivity? Thank you very much for your time. Enjoy the rest of your time here. Thank you. Next up, the fire extinguisher, a segment where events professionals tell us about a time when something went wrong at one of their events and they had to come up with a solution off the cuff. We're kicking this off with Felicity Cater, head of Event Lab. Okay, Flick, Hello. tell us about a time you had to put out a fire. So, uh, this is back in my very early conference producing days, um, starting out. I think it was my second event ever, uh, working for an <laughs> event management company. Um, and it was in Istanbul. We were working at a um, like big conference centre outside of the city centre. Mm. You had to actually go over a long bridge to get to it. Um, and it's over near the airport. There'd actually been an accident on the on the roads uh -oh. nobody could get across the bridge nobody could get to the event uh on day two sounds um, like an agatha christie novel yeah <laughs> <laughs> everyone's stuck on this venue i know and it was kind of it was eerily quiet it was mm. one of those where you just you know you could hear a pin drop and uh everyone's slightly hung over from <laughs> the networking reception the night before Classic. so feeling perhaps a little grumpy from just being there at all, um, needing some entertainment. Um, so, yeah, we we were told it was going to take about an hour for people mm -hmm. to get there. And I just kind of internally freaked out, <laughs> thinking, what the hell am I going to do with these people for an hour? How am I going to make them happy? How am I going to make them actually want to be here and not kind of just leave? 
Um, the people that were there were the people that stayed in the in the room the night before and in the in the same venue. We had the chairman there. Uh, and I went and spoke to, I was doing the rounds, just chatting to people, asking them how they were, seeing if they wanted more coffee, just trying to kind of win them, win them over with catering. <laughs> uh, always, you know, if someone's hungover, you go for the food first. Yeah, food and coffee. Uh, absolutely. Uh, fuel is the number one. And then once they were kind of, you know, perking up a little bit, uh, I went and chatted to the uh, chairman and I was starting to get a little bit edgy by this point because it's been about 45 minutes and it got to that point where I just thought okay they need something more of substance now yeah uh, and um, if it was a gig people would be like slamming their, hat, their yeah. feet on the floor <laughs> yeah absolutely uh, so I kind of just I kind of had a bit of a brainwave moment and made a joke to him have you got any other talents uh, and it turns out he kind of dabbled with comedy like stand up <laughs> comedy a little bit we okay younger. okay uh, he hadn't practiced it for maybe a mm-hmm. decade but uh and i jokingly not really jokingly at all <laughs> uh invited him to, to kind of exercise that a little bit and just see if he wouldn't mind doing a little bit of kind of off the cuff stuff uh get people seated early kind of warm up the crowd <laughs> for the uh for the keynote speaker uh and he kind of just went for it yeah. he was just like fine you know needs must let's do this <laughs> um we got him up there and he was actually really good. Uh, I can't off remember any of the material now, but all I know is that um, it was pretty animated and <laughs> people were actually properly laughing. Oh, excellent. By the time the keynote speaker came, everyone was a bit like, oh, I don't want <laughs> to talk about business now. This is great. Um, so, yeah, I guess the tip and takeaway from that for me was, like, use your resources. And mm. you might they might not even be kind of readily... You don't, I don't know straight away what they are. They might yeah. not be apparent. Uh, uh, but take just kind stock. Of, yeah, like once the panicking stages have subsided and you've got a bit of a clearer head and you start to actually think proactively about a solution, just like people are people. So, I mean, do what the event industry does best and talk to people, find out more about them, make a joke about the situation and kind of work out then how you can actually do something about it. And ultimately, yeah, people just liked chatting to other people and hearing their funny stories and made everyone a bit warmer. Brilliant. Thank you so much for Flick for coming in and telling us that. Thanks, Joe. And that's everything we've got for you this week. While we're waiting for more news on Event Lab 2020, you may be interested to know that Event Lab run a series of smaller events throughout the year. Go to eventlab.online and sign up for our newsletter to hear more about those. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. We saw that there was quite a few new reviews on iTunes, very positive, loving it, but keep going. We saw a lot of people talking about our last episode, so we're loving that and we want plenty more of it. You can follow all that we do on Twitter and Instagram using the handle eventlab underscore online. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can email us at eventlab at hirespace.com. Thanks very much for listening.